It's confounded true crime fans for over 50 years. The hijacking of a flight by a well-dressed man who demanded money and then disappeared with it into the cold, dark night. Could he possibly have survived the jump? Or did he never actually leave the plane at all? This is the story of D.B. Cooper, the still to this day unidentified man who escaped a plane in midair in nothing but a trench coat and loafers. Hi friends, I'm Katie and this is Katie Does Crime. Welcome to those of you just joining. I try to release a new true crime story once a week and ask you to please subscribe if you like what you see here. Now, many of you are already going to be aware of the case of D.B. Cooper, but I just couldn't resist making my own video about this fascinating, almost mythological creature. There was an HBO documentary that came out about it last year, and there's a Netflix special coming out about it this month, and I was like, those nobodies? Katie Does Crime needs to cover this story. I'm just kidding, but I do love this 50-year-old mystery that remains unsolved to this day. When you search Google, D.B. Cooper solved 2020 and D.B. Cooper solved 2021 are some of the top hits because suspects just keep coming and no one can believe we still don't know what happened. Our story begins the day before Thanksgiving 1971 when a passenger in row 18 on Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305 politely passed a note to a flight attendant sitting near him in the jump seat on the Boeing 727-100. She just stuck it in her purse because you know how these businessmen are always hitting on a woman in uniform. But he said, Miss, you'd better have a look at that note. I have a bomb. Another flight attendant said she remembers the note saying, Miss, I have a bomb here and I would like you to sit by me. Luckily, this was back in olden times when flights weren't purposely oversold. So the plane was only one third full on its way from Portland to Seattle. The man had been a very chill passenger before this, ordering bourbon and smoking in the back of the plane and chortling to himself in that bygone manly way while giving everyone else on the plane lung cancer. Okay, I might be making that last part up. He was later described as mid-40s, around 5'10", with dark hair and a business suit with a black tie. He had paid cash for his $20 ticket and said his name was Dan Cooper. Now that the flight attendant was sitting beside him, she asked to see the bomb he claimed to have, and he opened his black briefcase to reveal what looked like dynamite. If she didn't want to find out for sure, he would need $200,000, equivalent to over a million dollars today, four parachutes, and a truck waiting in Seattle to refuel the plane. The flight attendant went up to relay the demands to the pilot, and Cooper sat back in his slick black sunglasses. Back in the late 60s and early 70s, hijacking a plane was seen a little differently than it is today. In a five-year period, over 130 planes were hijacked in America by people wanting to protest the U.S.'s relationship with Cuba, either Cubans wanting to go home or Americans wanting to become communists. Airlines just went with it to avoid violence, and it's said that every cockpit had a map of the Caribbean at the time, just in case. Passengers would pick up some cigars while the plane made its unplanned stop and then get back on it like it had just been a fun little vacation to Cuba. After 9-11, of course, we take these things a bit more seriously. The Boeing circled for two hours that afternoon around Seattle in 1971 while the pilot talked to air traffic control, who called the local police, who brought in the FBI. The other passengers were told to hang tight while the crew worked on a minor mechanical difficulty, which was really the FBI getting the parachutes from a local skydiving school and gathering the ransom money from a bunch of local banks, and then meticulously taking photos of each bill. The flight attendants say the hijacker was polite and thoughtful during all of this, paying for another drink and talking about the sights on the ground below as if he was from the area. One of the flight attendants asked if he had a grudge against the airline in particular, and he said, 
I don't have a grudge against your airline, miss. I just have a grudge. The plane landed at 5.39 p.m. in heavy rain with the window shades closed so no snipers could try any funny business. The cash and parachutes were brought to one of the flight attendants, and then all of the 36 passengers and two of the flight attendants were allowed to disembark. Cooper then told the remaining crew exactly how to proceed toward Mexico. As slow as possible, no higher than 10,000 feet up, with the landing gear out, the wing flaps down 15 degrees, the cabin depressurized, and the rear exit open with the stairs deployed. The airline staff said it would be unsafe for the stairs to be out when the plane took off, and Cooper was like, ugh, fine, Dad, I'll just put them out again when we're in the air. He was just trying to be a gentleman hijacker. They took off again at 7.40 p.m. with a stop planned in Reno along the way to refuel again, but Cooper wouldn't make it that far. He requested his ransom note back and made the flight attendant and crew stay in the cockpit. This was a time when there weren't peepholes in cockpit doors. At 8 p.m., he lowered the plane's rear stairs again. They felt the air pressure in the plane change after that, and at 8.13, the tail section of the plane was suddenly forced upward, possibly to his weight leaving the stairs. When the plane landed in Reno, Cooper was no longer aboard, and the bomb was taken with him. Even though two Air Force fighter pilots had been cruising above and below the plane out of view, no one had seen Cooper deploy. Because the fighter jets weren't able to go as slow as Cooper had demanded of the Boeing's pilot, they had to sort of zigzag to stay with the plane. Fingerprints, almost too many to be useful, were recovered from the cabin, along with Cooper's tie, tie pin, and two of his parachutes. Authorities immediately questioned a man from Oregon named D.B. Cooper who had a record, and an overly ambitious reporter relayed this as the name of the suspect instead of Dan Cooper. The name stuck. The search for the newly dubbed D.B. Cooper was exhaustive, ranging from the mountains to the forest to the lakes to the local farmhouses on foot and by helicopter and with boats. The FBI even tried to recreate the jump from the plane using a 200-pound sled. The cloud cover had just been too great that night for anyone to be sure where Cooper jumped and how long he was in the air before deploying his chute. They found trees that looked to have been disturbed and parts of parachutes, but nothing seemingly had anything to do with their case. A skeleton was even found, but it turned out to be a girl who had been kidnapped and murdered. Still no DB. Banks and casinos were looking for the ransom money's serial numbers, and the airline even offered a reward if someone came forward with the money. None of it was ever recovered this way, but amazingly, some of the money was found in 1980 by an eight-year-old boy near Vancouver, Washington. He was building a campfire in the sand near the Columbia River and found $5,800 still in its rubber bands, but with a lot of wear and tear from Mother Nature. Authorities don't think the bills had been buried, but had likely been washed there by the river due to the way their corners had been rounded from weathering. But it remains a mystery why three bundles of money would have traveled together and why 10 bills were missing from one of the bundles. The FBI searched for more money in the area, but were never able to find any. The instructions for deploying the same type of aircraft stairs were found in Washington by a hunter in 1978, but no DNA was left behind on them. Amazingly, eight cigarettes that Cooper smoked while on the plane were conveniently lost sometime after the hijacking and a DNA profile was constructed from the clip-on tie he left behind, but authorities can't know for sure that it's Cooper's DNA. One very interesting piece of evidence to me is that of the four parachutes applied to him, Cooper chose an older one to actually use, and the one he chose for his reserve chute was actually one they used for teaching in the classroom. It wasn't even functional at all. 
It makes you wonder what would have happened had the FBI given him four completely unusable shoots. Would he have even known? In the five years after the plane hijacking, the FBI was working with a list of 800-plus suspects. Finally, in 2016, they said they were suspending their investigation of what they'd been calling the Norjack case for Northwest hijacking. But they made all of the evidence and the 66 volumes of case files public. You can imagine the speculation that's come out since then from armchair detectives or so-called Cooperites. I can't begin to even cover all the proposed suspects in this short video, but let me tell you about the favorite according to a lot of people. His name was Richard Floyd McCoy Jr., born December 7, 1942 in North Carolina. He served in the Army, specifically wanted to go to Vietnam, and served in the Utah National Guard. He dreamed of becoming an FBI or CIA agent, but instead he was a Sunday school teacher at his Mormon church. What makes him compelling is that he loved skydiving, and about five months after the D.B. Cooper debacle, McCoy tried the exact same thing on another Boeing 727. He bought a United Airlines ticket under the name James Johnson, and he launched himself with one of the four parachutes he requested out the back of that plane via the rear stairs, just as D.B. Cooper had. He got away with $500,000 in cash and used a fake grenade and an unloaded gun to threaten the crew. The next morning, an acquaintance tipped off police that he knew someone who bragged about a foolproof plan for hijacking an airplane. A young man also said he was paid $5 for a ride out of town by a hitchhiker in a jumpsuit at a hamburger stand. Authorities matched fingerprints and handwriting from the hijacking to the Army's records of McCoy and picked him up after two whole days. He was conveniently helping the National Guard do helicopter searches for the hijacker. The FBI found the jumpsuit and $499,970 inside McCoy's house. At least he'd use some of that ransom money to buy a milkshake. Richard McCoy, a BYU student and Utah National Guard pilot, did the very same thing as D.B. Cooper six months later. McCoy made improvements, like not losing the money. But then again, he got caught, and D.B. Cooper is still out there. Or is he? In 1972, Richard McCoy becomes a hunted man after parachuting out of the plane over the skies of Utah County. Hours earlier, he hijacks a plane going to Los Angeles. He demands half a million dollars. The plane lands in San Francisco. He gets the money and forces the pilot to fly to Mexico. But approaching Utah, he parachutes out of the plane and lands in a remote field near Springville. That same night, he asked Pete Zimmerman, who was 16 years old at the time, for a ride. He said, you know, I really need a ride bad. I mean, would you consider, he says, right on the south side of Provo. It's not very far at all. You know, I could really use some help. He takes the stranger to his home in Provo, but Zimmerman never forgets his face. Then a McCoy family member and a close friend contact authorities after learning of the hijacking. They tell authorities McCoy once boasted of hijacking a plane and is nowhere to be found that day. Zimmerman also goes to police after reading the headlines the next day. The FBI execute a search warrant at the home, finding parachutes, a typewriter, and nearly half a million dollars in cash. And McCoy is under arrest. He of course said he was innocent, but was sent to jail for 45 years, where he promptly escaped with three other convicts and robbed a bank. My favorite little tidbit is that to aid in the escape, McCoy made a fake handgun out of dental paste stolen from the prison dentist, how could this have possibly fooled anyone? The FBI picked up his scent three months later, and when he arrived home one day, agents were waiting for him. He fired at them, they fired back, and McCoy died on November 9, 1974. McCoy resembled the sketches made of D.B. Cooper, 
and his military training might have allowed him to survive the elements after the jump in 1971. Like D.B. Cooper, he tried to demand that the instructional notes he passed to the crew be returned to him once read. While in college, McCoy wrote his thesis on preventing airline hijackings and realized that lagging security would make it easy for a skilled parachutist to get rich with a simple scheme. There's evidence in the form of gas station receipts and telephone records that McCoy was in the right area in the days before D.B. Cooper's hijacking. And Cooper's clip-on tie and tie pin, which were left behind in the plane, were identified by McCoy's family as belonging to him. This sort of tie pin was popular among students at Brigham Young University, where McCoy went to school. And McCoy has never been officially eliminated as a suspect by DNA. Although, detractors would say that his DNA hasn't been eliminated because his family refuses to provide any. And if McCoy was an avid skydiver, why would he have selected the non-functional classroom parachute as his backup on the night of the first hijacking? Just to throw authorities off the scent? Just to have something to attach the cash to himself with? Also, McCoy had an alibi for the evening of the D.B. Cooper hijacking. He was having Thanksgiving dinner with his family in Utah. Of course, do you trust his family to be telling the truth? Whatever you think, it's clear that D.B. Cooper has captured our imagination. Hundreds gathered for CooperCon 2021 in Vancouver last year to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the mystery and discuss new findings. In the Disney Plus show Loki, the title character hijacks a plane in a suit and glasses after losing a bet with Thor. He uses the Bifrost Rainbow Bridge to get back to Asgard from the plane, which is why they never caught him. In a movie that one of my friends tells me I should see, but that I will definitely never see, without a paddle starring Matthew Lillard, Seth Green, and Dax Shepard, they go on a camping trip to try to find Cooper's ransom money. Thanks to D.B. Cooper, whoever he is, there are now safety latches on planes with rear stairs called Cooper vanes that keep you from being able to open the door while in the air. But some argue that maybe Cooper never even jumped from the plane. Maybe he just opened the rear stair door and then hid in the bathroom or the cargo hold somehow. But then, how did that marked ransom money end up in the riverbank? Honestly, it was so dangerous that the guy might have just died as soon as he jumped from the plane. It was below zero degrees up in the sky that night, and he was wearing loafers. He didn't even have any goggles. But maybe that's just because he was so very skilled at skydiving. It seems like we might never know, and some people don't think we should try to find out. The story is just too good to spoil. The mystery of D.B. Cooper is the only unsolved hijacking in commercial aviation history. Thank you for tuning into my podcast episode. I'm just a true crime fan like you are, and I really appreciate you taking a chance on me. Please subscribe and tell a friend if you like spending this time together. You can also find me on YouTube in the flesh by searching Katie Does Crime.